Jam Master J, Grandmaster Flash, Run DMC, EPMD, Slick Rick, De La Soul, Public Enemy, Queen Latifah, MC Light. I'm here to tell you who they are. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Devers, and this is Clever. Today, I'm talking to Say Adams. To be honest, it's going to be hard for me to do justice in explaining just how important Say Adams is in the creation of hip-hop visual culture, and by extension, global contemporary culture. He is, no exaggeration, one of the primary architects, visionaries, and makers who translated the essence, vibe, and ethos of a burgeoning movement into the visual language that has become the societal shorthand for hip-hop. In fact, Say's work is so deeply embedded in our cultural consciousness that it's revelatory to trace it back to the origins and relive the moments in which he was defining his creative voice. Let me explain. Say, a New York City native, was born in 1962. By the time he was a teenager in the 70s, he was a prominent graffiti artist developing his style and perfecting his craft in the dangerous circumstances necessitated by an illegal art form. By his late teens, early 20s, he was featured in Style Wars, the legendary 1982 documentary chronicling the emergent graffiti artists, rappers, and b-boys that were at the center of a growing movement known as hip-hop. He was also selling his graffiti on canvases in art galleries, hanging around with contemporaries like Keith Haring, Jean-Michel Basquiat, and Andy Warhol, while also designing merch, logos, billboards, ad campaigns, and singles for his friends, hip-hop recording artists such as Run DMC, The Beastie Boys, De La Soul, and LL Cool J. For most of the 80s and 90s, Say served as the founding creative director at Def Jam Recordings, and along with his business partner, Steve Carr, co-founded The Drawing Board, the label's in-house design firm, where they defined the visual culture of hip-hop. The creative firm was responsible for some of the most iconic album covers, logos, and advertising campaigns. For Run DMC, Beastie Boys, LL Cool J, Slick Rick, Public Enemy, The Notorious B.I.G., DMX, Jay-Z, Usher, Mary J. Blige, and many more. It is impossible to overstate his influence. Now, over his 40-plus years as a professional artist, He's racked up a long list of accomplishments and accolades as a commercial graphic artist, muralist, fine artist, and lecturer. He's collaborated with global brands, including Levi's, Mattel, Apple, IDEO, Converse, YouTube, Google, and more. Has created works acquired and commissioned by museums, including One Nation, a large-scale collage work in the permanent collection of the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture and currently a traveling retrospective exhibition called Departure, 40 Years of Art and Design. So yeah, he's been busy. In celebration of the 50th anniversary of hip hop, it is my absolute honor to speak with Say about his life and art. With humility, clarity, and exceptional self-awareness, he harnessed his creativity, values, work ethic, and enthusiasm to lay the visual groundwork for hip-hop as an enduring global creative movement. Here's Say. My name is Say Adams, and I live and work in Brooklyn, New York. I'm a visual artist. I work in all kinds of mediums, and I've been an artist my whole life. 
I, I literally do not have a memory of wanting to be any other thing. So that's why I make art. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, and what an illustrious artist career you've had. But you've done it your whole life. You started really early. Can you take me back to the early 60s and talk to me about your formative years and how you kind of found your creativity and what your childhood was like? Well, like I said, I, I, I don't have a memory beyond, you know, five or so, but I, I've been an artist from that point on. At Christmas, I would get easels and you know, colored markers and things like that. And I know that a lot of kids get those things. But for me, that was my calling. I, I just sort of figured it out really early on. Figuring out how to make a living is another story. But when I was a kid, I, I just loved to make things. And I, I did that in grade school. I was in local competitions middle school, the same thing. And that said, I, I did other things like play sports like other kids, but when it comes to making art, that was the thing that gave me the most excitement. Where did it come from? Were your siblings also creative? You had two two siblings, yeah? Two brothers and two sisters. Oh, okay. And my brothers had some of the ability, but again, I I, I sort of have to preface it by saying when we were teenagers, we all were interested in graffiti. And growing up in New York, that was something that a lot of kids did. Most of them phased out of it, but my brothers did naturally, but I did not. And I just linked up with other kids that were interested in graffiti that were more serious. And those became the folks that helped me build my foundation. Okay, so walk me into discovering your own personal style and getting like deeply into the graffiti movement. Discovering my own personal style, it, it's kind of strange because I love bold signs and graphics and a lot of that informs the work that I do today. But I've loved that since I was a small kid. I can remember sort of studying every aspect of the cereal box when my siblings and I were eating breakfast. And for me, 
those characters were really, really important to me. Those were things that spoke to me. And I was consumed with all forms of visual identity, whether it was cartoons on Saturday morning, graphics. If I was in my parents' car, we were going somewhere for the weekend, I'd be just studying science because there was nothing else to do but sit in the back of our minivan and fight with my brothers and sisters. And it just gave me some other thing to focus my energy on. And as you were studying these sort of branded characters and graphics, were you kind of deconstructing them in your mind? Were you wondering how they were done or why they were done that way? Well, I certainly knew that it was advertising, but I don't know if I spent that much time thinking about it in that way. It was more like I knew if I could recreate something like that for memory, that I, I had a special ability because comic books and superheroes and all of those things were the easiest way for you to connect with what felt like real art to me at that time. Mm -hmm. I used to love comic book illustrators. They just had an ability that to just sort of translate ideas that made me really excited. And that's what I thought I wanted to do for a really long time. And why didn't you go into comic book illustrating? What, what was the detour? I, I don't know if there was a detour. I just didn't know that it was a profession that I could participate in. I just saw it as a way for me to measure my skill. If I could recreate something that Neil Adams did or Jack Davis did, and those were two of my favorite illustrators, I just knew I had special ability because to take something and mirror it exact scale, shape, size is something that a lot of people cannot do. True. And that is a great way also to kind of develop your technique and perfect your craft by copying the masters, essentially. Sure. Yeah. But at some point, you link up with people who are more serious about graffiti, and you also develop a very unique style and expression and you get deeply into the movement. And that is a really interesting time, I think, in terms of art. But I think it's also a very interesting expression because it also involves so much peril. <laughs> like, it's dangerous. Well, it does. And, yeah. and you, you have to understand that for a teenager, danger and excitement are something that you welcome because... I come from a big family, so everything that's going on in my household felt safe. To be able to go into the big city, we lived in the suburbs, so to be able to go to Manhattan was an adventure. To be able to navigate Times Square and, and forget the idea of going down into the subway tunnels, pure danger. But <laughs> it's a huge level of excitement. And the thing about kids, teenagers in particular, 
they thrive on that excitement and that adrenaline rush. So being afraid is a part of the experience. If you can navigate through all of that and you come up in the morning and you're still alive, that's the essence of being a teenager. And you you come home in the morning and you know you're going to get it. You have to still figure out a way to get ready for school. And all of that was very exciting to me compared to just whatever my little life was in my bedroom. So what age was this that you started going out and into the danger? 15, 16, certainly 17. And I'm kind of curious about what else that whole operation taught you. I mean, there's the art and craft of actually creating the work, but then there's the kind of tactical strategery of getting yourself into a position to actually do it, evade the danger. And there are lots of things that, you know, you're dealing with in terms of precarious physical positioning, but also cops and rival gangs and- All of it. Yeah. All of it. We had to steal our materials, paint, markers, all that. I didn't have any money to buy anything. If I had money for something, it was going towards food. It wasn't going towards those kinds of things. (laughs) And so it is very much like being a a secret agent or a spy. Yeah. (laughs) You have to get into the store, get your materials, get out the door without being noticed, It doesn't help that there's a group of us. We did not look like we were going to go into the, you know, the local paint store and spend $50 on on materials. We look like kids and we Mm -hmm. look like we were up to no good. So (laughs) to be able to navigate those waters, knowing all of this was an even bigger deal. And certainly looking back on it, I never felt like I was special. It was just a part of what you had to do. And you would share that information with your peers and you'd meet at these places like the writer's bench in the Bronx. And we had a couple of places in New York and Queens that we would meet and we would exchange ideas or we'd meet at the local pizza shop. And that was where we would exchange stories about how we did things. We would share information and really help each other get better at figuring out how to do this work in a more productive way. As you're describing it, it sounds to me a little bit like these comic book superheroes coming to life, like with your secret hideouts and your covert missions. (laughs) Yeah, but you also have to understand this was our version of growing up and being an adult. We did all of this under the radar of what was going on with our families and the, the other adults in the neighborhood because they would rat you out And then you had a problem. So if your parents didn't catch you, the neighbors would catch you. And all of those things were things that we had to be aware of and careful of while trying to create this visual language that 
would impress your peers. That was what the crew was for. That was why people had these little cliques and crews. They weren't like drug dealing gangs. So I, I you know, I have to make that distinction because this is the 70s. Mm-hmm. They were not drug dealing gangs. We were kids, teenagers. And for the, the purpose of what we're talking about, we will, we will keep it under 18 because we were really young yeah. to even be able to run around and do those things between, you know, 15 and 18 is nuts by today's standards. It is. <laughs> and that's, I mean, that's one of the things that is so exciting to hear you talk about because from 15 to 18 or to 20, you are actually sort of in art school of your own making under the radar, but you did eventually come above ground and be celebrated as a legitimate artist for your graffiti, which started as a sort of illegal way of expressing yourself. But you got noticed, you got recognized, and you got celebrated for it. But it it took a lifetime and no guarantees. Not to say that going to a university and, and, you know, getting a, a bunch of degrees is going to bear fruit. But everybody understands what a doctor does. Everybody understands what an attorney does. Everybody understands what a bus driver does, what a pilot does. Nobody understands what an artist does. They really do not. They, they know what art is, but they don't know what they do. They don't know the business of art. And so all of these things, they really have no rules. This is why things are the way that they are. Art is what you tell people it is. It's not like a chef. If you taste something and it doesn't taste great, that's a lousy chef. (laughs) Finished. But with art, nobody gets to decide except the maker. And that's the thing that's so beautiful about the craft. But it's also the thing that's so scary about the craft is that you constantly have to keep reinventing yourself, reminding people that I'm over here, I'm making art, I'm doing my thing, and really hustling, even after you're established, because there's always somebody that is going to reinvent the movement. Yes. There is a, a chapter of your life in which you're a contemporary of Keith Haring and Jean-Michel Basquiat, and you're rolling with Andy Warhol. What does that feel like to you? And is all is that electric and an adrenaline rush too, but in a different way? I know it's hard to put into context, but we were all the same age and we were all doing our thing. It looked different, we behaved different, but we were all friends the way people are friends on a a sports team. Sure, sure. We shared information in the same way I did when I was writing graffiti. And you have to understand that this is the early 80s and we were all hanging out in the same area, downtown Manhattan, Lower East Side. And it was 
a band of misfits. And I'm not calling them misfits. I'm just saying compared to people that took a traditional career or life path, we were doing DIY before it had a name. And I knew that they were exceptional people, but all my friends were exceptional people. They just didn't crack the code and become serious artists. They went in all these other directions and they lost their way and they might have started a family, went into the military, Mm -hmm. got wise and went to law school. But these guys were artists and they were hardworking. They were a lot of fun to be around. But it's really hard to sort of omit the success because this is what people know them for now. But if you're talking about the the the, the formative years, the early, early years, they were artists. Yeah. No, I, that, that makes sense to me. It's almost like they were just your your friends from the neighborhood. But you're learning at this time, too, because you're just absorbing like a sponge and you're ex- developing your craft and expressing yourself. And I'm kind of wondering how this particular chapter of your life prepared you for the next chapter. Well, the other thing I have to say is that you have to imagine that it didn't feel like chapters. It did not feel like these milestone moments. It's how do I X? If I saw somebody get representation, I thought, oh, that person has somebody helping them. That's what I want to do. I need support. So by the time I find a gallery that is willing to represent me, I'm still not even in my 20s. I'm a teenager. And I come home one day with like a a knot of money that's, you know, three inches thick. And my mother's like, where did you get that? And I said, I sold my art. And my mother could not process what that meant that I sold my art to come home with a a bankroll. But what she did understand was when she saw a full page spread of myself and my friends in the daily newspaper. And my full name is there and my age. And she says, wow, you guys are famous. People are paying attention to this stuff. And I said, yeah, I know. This is what I've been trying to tell you guys for a long time. When they see this in the newspaper, do you feel a little bit more sort of wind underneath you from them? Are they are they supportive and excited for your future? What I remember the most was them sort of understanding that this movement of all of these young people, whether it was music, dance, art, DJ, is that people were starting to take this stuff seriously. 
that's what I remember them realizing because this is still the early days and DJs weren't being acknowledged in the local newspaper. But because what we did was visual, I, I think it was a little bit easier to translate in print form. So those were the things that they noticed. And what I remember the most was that they just thought, oh, maybe I'm going to be okay. <laughs> hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly and they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. 
So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. Okay, so by the time we get to 1983, it seems like there is a whole section of your life that's beginning to become more professional. Well, certainly to me, by the time I turn 20, in my mind, I'm a professional artist. I even knew that when I was 19, because a lot of good things happened for me when I was 19. I was doing interviews with NPR. I was on national media outlets doing press. This gallery that was representing us got us a lot of media attention. And I was one of the lucky ones because I was able to look into a camera and be able to express myself beyond what I was doing on canvas. And I've always been friendly and easy to talk to. And I think when you have a room full of these unruly teen graffiti people, they just gravitate towards the people that get it done. Mm -hmm. And so I would get the call to do press more often than some of the others. And also you have to understand we were outlaws. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people did not want their face to be shown. They did not want their legal name to be printed. And people instantly shied away from any media attention. And this gallery that was so pivotal is called Graffiti Above Ground. Is that the gallery? Yes, that is correct. So when GPI, we called it GPI for short, Graffiti you know, Above Ground. So Graffiti Productions decides that I'm going to be one of their signature artists because I, I can translate work into multiple styles and it was easy to explain to collectors and I was user-friendly, all these things. I knew that this was the moment for me. This was my starting point. 
And I always wanted to do this, so I jumped in with both feet. And I was instantly ready to leave that other life behind because I knew that that was a means to an end and all you had to do was slip from an elevated platform and your story ends right there. (sighs) And you have to also take into consideration that adults are paying attention to something that I'm doing that is outside of my parents. And so this woman, Joyce Tobin, that ran the gallery along with her business partner, Mel Newlander, saw something in me that nobody else saw. And I thought, I'm going to take this opportunity to try to jumpstart my professional career. And and that was how I thought about it. Yeah. I mean, why do you think you were so self-aware at so young? You know, I, I, I sort of take everything back to opportunity mm-hmm. because we had everything we needed in terms of clothing and care and you know, I'm getting my dental work done and all of that. But for me to be seen as an individual was a special thing. I shared a bedroom. So that's why I'm I'm so Mm self-aware. I I did not know what space was. I did not know what privacy was. And, And so when you get an opportunity to have somebody see you, I'm just soaking it all up. Yeah, I I took my paintings down to this gallery on the subway. I didn't even have the resources to have them wrapped. Anybody that was on the subway could see exactly what I was doing. The bright, beautiful colors, people saw that. I walked into the gallery and I remember them looking at my work. And the first thing they said was, is this work available for sale? And I said, yes. And I'm, boom. I just go to hand her this big painting. And she immediately said, I need five more just like this. We have a workspace. And And I know that when I'm talking about this, it can sound like it was something like a factory or this art-making machine, but it was also a business. And they were in the business of selling art, riding this wave, because it could have easily fizzled out, and it did fizzle out. And so I knew that I had to make as much as I could, as fast as I could, because Once this press got out into the universe, other people were going to start knocking on their doors. Mm -hmm. Or they might find somebody that was as user-friendly as me. And I would not allow my ego to make me think I was so special that I had a lane all to myself. Wow. Enormously wise for such a a young artist, but also very agile and ready to take opportunities as they come and to recognize that it's a mutually beneficial relationship. What happens next? 
my son was born. Oh, wow. <laughs> Congratulations. So, <laughs> I'm 21 and this is 1984 and my son Eric is born and my girlfriend at the time we were in the process of starting a family, making a, a home together. And this is the first time I'm doing something outside of my, my folks. But now I have the resources to get my own place. I can decorate it the way I want to. My son could have his own crib, like this space. Mm-hmm. Space is a big, big thing when you come from a large family. And so this is truly the beginning of real responsibility. I'm looking at this baby that is this tiny little thing in my hand. And <laughs> oh, oh, can you share that photo with us so I can show our listeners? That's this so is not great. a photo. This is oh, a it's... pillow. This is a pillow that my son gave me for a birthday and it's just, it's one of my favorite things. This thing is just sitting on my sofa and <laughs> it's it. just a reminder of how long we have been together. And I had to get serious really quickly when that guy came along. It was real responsibility. And whatever I thought I knew, I was guaranteed that I needed to know more. Because the one thing that everybody knows is that kids have one word that they ask over and over and over again. Do you know what that word is? Why? Why? (laughs) Why? I love that you knew that. Why? (laughs) And I knew that I did not have the answer to all of those whys. And I thought to myself, man, I really have to learn how to take care of this baby. And I say that keeping in context that my parents are a few towns away. I have the support of my extended family, my brothers and sisters, my aunts and uncles, my my girlfriend's family. But I felt like I was responsible for this little person. And I had to figure out how I was going to take care of this baby. And how did you figure that out? One day at a time. Yeah. One day at a time. I, 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 I made, I read a lot of books. I bought a lot of books. I made a lot of mistakes but I could always ask my folks how to, how to. But again, you have to remember this is the 80s. Mm-hmm. People are still smoking inside. I know, I know. I, I, have, I have never been a smoker ever at any point in my life. I've never tried cigars, cigarettes, like, you know, drugs, alcohol, none of it. I come from an alcoholic family, so I, I, I shied away from that stuff instantly. In a way, that's maybe an ace up your sleeve. Oh, of course. But as a teenager, peer pressure is all around you. True. So to be 
shying away and to make it look like something other than fear and insecurity because teenagers are horrible. Yes. The only thing worse than a teenager is, is a, an adolescent. They tease you. They make you feel so bad. They say whatever comes into their head. They they don't edit themselves at all. So imagine people offering you things and you're saying no, but you still have the self-confidence to say, I know who I am and I don't need to follow them doing that. I'm willing to follow them when it comes to doing this graffiti thing, but I'm not taking any drugs and I'm not drinking anything. I'm not doing that. If you all are going that way, I'm going this way. And luckily for me, Mm -hmm. in 1977, Fleetwood Mac releases Rumors. And one of the biggest songs on that album was Go Your Own Way. And that has been my mantra since then. Anytime I have a doubt in my mind about a direction or a path and everybody's going that way, if I feel like I need to go the other way, I go my own way. Wow. Wow. I love that story. And I love the visual image of you like being self-assured enough to go your own way in the midst of all of that. Okay, so 1984, your son Eric is born Professionally, you're selling work through the gallery and also designing logos, singles, T-shirts, and merch for musicians for the burgeoning hip-hop scene, yes? Yeah, so I am working with Russell Simmons at the time, and he and my buddy Leo Cohen and Rick Rubin, they have Def Jam up and running and and I you know I have to frame this carefully because I love these guys and I don't want people to think that I'm rewriting history. Rick Rubin and Russell Simmons form Def Jam. Mm-hmm. Leor Cohen comes in and he becomes the road manager for Run DMC. But it felt like a clubhouse that had no division. Rush Artist Management is over here. Def Jam Recordings is right here in the same building, different floors. But it was like a a, a clubhouse with no walls. Everybody is there. They're managing Run DMC, Public Enemy, LL Cool J, The Beastie Boys, De La Soul, Slick Rick, EPMD, Eric B and Rakim, Big Daddy Kane, Stetsasonic, it, it just went on and on and on. And all of these people needed creative. Yeah. And I was the only person there other than my buddy, Eric Hayes, who did not work in the office, but he kept his own hours. And he showed me the ropes of how to design a logo, how to do cut and paste graphic design. And he really gave me the chops to be able to navigate how to handle all of that workflow. And a few years later, my buddy Steve Carr and I form our own graphic design firm called The Drawing Board. And Def Jam and Rush are some of our biggest clients. And 
we basically do every single thing that is visual. If there was a graphic need, and believe me, nobody was using that word at the time. Yeah. They were not using the term designer, art director, creative director. Those people existed, but they did not exist downtown where we were. I was the art guy. The end. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Quick technical question. Is there anything about the workflow of graffiti that you can sort of overlay or superimpose on the workflow of Def Jam and all the work you were doing? Sure. Speed. Yeah. Speed. (laughs) (laughs) And this is why I say this, because back then, people did not understand boundaries. They did not understand timelines. All they understood was checks and balances in terms of what it is going to cost. Okay. What's the ROI? And that was all they understood. So if you could not explain how what I am doing is going to add value to the company, and I mean value that you can hold in your hand, not value that you can measure over... 10, 15, 20 years. Right. Not long-term brand cachet. No. More like a stack of money you can hold in in your hand. Instant value. (laughs) Yeah. Instant value. Because for them to take somebody out on the road, it was expensive. Mm -hmm. And so you had to articulate your value in an instant. And I had made it very clear that what I do, nobody else can do. I could paint a tour backdrop on location and it was a fraction of what these factories and production companies were charging the record company and the management company and the recording artists. So I could show instant value. Say can do this so much faster. He understands the language of our artists. And so those opportunities found their way to me because I was there, I was friends with the bands, I understood their language, I knew how to communicate that look to the street. Yeah. And all of those things were instant shorthand. Granted, I was making, even to be nice, a third of what they were charging, but I had all of those opportunities to myself. Mm. And it was a secret society. Nobody knew I was doing this work. I did not care about business cards. I didn't care about labels. All I cared about was I'm traveling with my friends first locally, then nationally, then internationally. And I am getting paid. I can send money back home to feed my son and my girlfriend and my parents I can get them things and my brothers and sisters. And this was an opportunity that I created. Mm-hmm. I, I nurtured it. I, I made it manifest itself into reality. But then I had to nurture it and I had to work like, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to say like a maniac because nobody was ever off the clock. I mean, you get to eat and sleep and, and all the rest of it. But I'm young. I am high with excitement 
for this new opportunity. And I get to see the world. Yeah. Europe, Asia, you name it. And I'm with my friends. So let's talk about those friends. I know you had a really close relationship with the Beastie Boys and traveled with them. I still do. Yes, you still do. I still do. Which says something, right? It says something about the nature of the bond that was formed, but also you both of your characters. There's nothing I love more than a really lifelong friendship. <laughs> I was very, very lucky that I found people that cared about each other and they took me with them. And again, this is why I say I'm was the right kind of person because I have always been easy to be around. And if you find yourself around other like-minded people, you don't have to be twins, but bright, level-headed, funny, easygoing, able to share information, ideas, things, that's the kind of person I am, and I was lucky enough to meet other people like that in the Beastie Boys, in Run DMC. And that's what I was aware of in my 20s. But I'm not thinking about the future. I'm just thinking, wow, these guys are bringing me on tour. And I I get to have these experiences and I get to earn my keep because I can make things and bring ideas to life. And I just did not want it to end. I just wanted to keep doing it and really just enjoy the moment because I, I knew that this was not something that anybody that I came up with was doing. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Yeah, so you said early on that one of your dreams, your goals in life was to see the world. Now you're seeing the world. How is it seeping into your creative practice? How is it how is it changing you as a person? So I go out on the License to Ill tour with the Beastie Boys and we did a little pre-press tour in 86. Then we go out on a full-fledged tour in, in 87. Then in 88, we go out on the Together Forever tour with Run DMC and the Beastie Boys. So I was on the road for quite a few years. And I'm certainly getting home to come see my family and my my son and all of it. But I'm just saying we were traveling a lot. Yeah. And I I was going everywhere the bands were going. And we're we're flying, we're on buses, we're on trains, we're using every mode of transportation known to man <laughs> except being on a boat. <laughs> we we traveled a lot. And so after doing that for a bunch of years, I needed a break, the band needed a break, 
And I, I came back home and, and I started thinking, oh, I, I want to get a space and I want to make work and I, I want to really start thinking about other ways to communicate visual ideas. Mm, mm-hmm. And and so I got a small studio and I started making art. And this is the thing about this story. This is a 40-year span. Yes. It's a very long time. And I, I have to put it in context because to try to do a 30-second chronological <laughs> breakdown is just too difficult. But what I will say is by the time I come off the road and Steve Carr and I start drawing board graphic design and we start basically running our design studio and it is a day job, I'm going out on the road not nearly as often as I was, but now I'm managing people, I'm running a studio, I'm enjoying what I'm doing because I'm stationary. Yeah. My my son is going to school and coming home. And when he comes home after school, he comes and he hangs out in the office until it's time for dad to go home. So he's spending his early evenings at the office and he's eating dinner with me at the office. And he's hanging out with our friends, which happen to be people like the Beastie Boys mm-hmm. and Run DMC and Public Enemy and LL Cool J and and going into, you know, more recent years, Ja Rule and, and Jay-Z. And these were the folks that we worked with. So these were the folks I spent time with. These were the folks my son spent time with. And whenever I had parenting advice, and this is going to sound funny, (laughs) but oftentimes I would go to the recording artist. I remember once my son was screwing up in school and his grades started to suffer, but he was so into these recording artists because these were the people we knew. And I remember going to Method Man and I said, hey, Meth, I I need a favor. And he's like, yeah, say, what do you need? And I says, would you mind talking to Eric? Because he's acting up in school and he worships the ground that everybody in this office walks on. And I said, just just say something to him because when I'm talking, it goes in one ear and out the other. But if you say something, he'll hear you. And he would go in and he would sit down with my son. And, and that was the kind of thing that I had at my disposal that I did not really realize how special it was because it's just another day at the office. And The same thing with DMX. He could get my son's attention in ways that I never could by just introducing him to, you know, one of his little pit bulls and he's playing with this puppy. And I'm just thinking, wow, this is my life. These are the people that are (laughs) nurturing my my son. But it was what it was. I've, heard a lot of stories about hip hop culture, but I have not heard one like that. And it 
does really sound like a village, you know? And I love that you brought everyone together to help raise each other up. <laughs> but I'm not going to pretend that I invented this. And no, again, no. <laughs> I'm, I'm a part of a, a large group. And you, you have to understand that the, the office was where everything happened and everything came together. If you had a problem that had to be solved, oftentimes there was somebody in the office that knew somebody that knew somebody. It was just the way it was. I, I mean, I can imagine that. And I, I appreciate that you're very democratic in the way that you describe your participation and your contribution. But on some level, I have to believe that you yourself, your personality, were a bit of a catalyst, a, a oh. sort of through point, a connection that oh, everyone sure, could rely sure, on. Yeah. Sure. And, and I'm managing a studio and I have a partner, but collectively – we were responsible for the careers of so many other creatives. And I had to learn how to be a manager. I had to learn how to listen to somebody talk about their feelings. I had to learn how to communicate. And I made mistakes. I made mistakes. I made mistakes. But it's easy to say that now. But when you're in charge of somebody's career and they look to you as their boss. It doesn't matter that you're the same age. <laughs> you're supposed to be able to navigate these waters and keep the train on the tracks and keep everybody happy and be universally democratic. And those were things that I had to learn in real time while we were making art at a very high level, we had to deal with outside vendors. We had to deal with budgets. We had to deal with contracts. We had to deal with printers. We had to deal with all of these people that I never knew I would have to interact with in the name of making art to put on an album cover. I mean, this is trial by fire, it sounds like. And you you were an artist since you were a kid. But this whole, like, how do I build an organizational structure? How do I manage personalities? How do I know what's going to be a mistake until it's happened and I have to fix it or assume the blame? And then, yeah, I can't even imagine the pressure. But at the same time, what do you think is your particular skill at overcoming? Or what's your finesse? You know what it is? I have to wake up in the morning and come to work and I love what I do. So the goal is to keep going, just okay. to keep going. That's the goal because no matter how much time passes, there's always responsibility. And it's my responsibility to take care of the folks that I work with. And it's something that I take very seriously. And it's something that I, I feel proud to be able to take very seriously. And and that's the way I think about it. I'm, I'm still as excited as I was when I was 20, because I know that there's so much more for me to do. There's a lot for me to learn, but I love watching 
people solve problems and then getting an opportunity to see their work in in print form or you know in digital form but just this idea that if my studio is doing something and i can empower some young person to know that they can do it because i did it that's the whole job that is the whole job and that's the space that i live in today i travel around the country i i lecture and i teach and I, I basically preached the gospel of hip hop culture from a visual perspective. Yes. And that is an honor. This is the 50th anniversary of hip hop. It did not have to be this way. We could have went the way of the hula hoop. <laughs> right. We right. really could have. It did not have to happen. Hip hop did not have to become what it is. And to be able to be one of those people that has had a front seat at the table all the time and to say that I'm still friends with these folks. Well, you had a front row seat for sure, but you were also one of the makers. You were one of the key makers yeah, of the culture. Yeah, but, so but- you, your hands were in it. You were busy and you were working. Yeah. All I'm saying is that it was fun, but (laughs) as long as I'm alive and I feel good and I have the opportunity to continue to make things, I'm going to try to live up to the legacy of my friend Adam Yauk and put good energy out into the universe. Remember people like my friend Frosty Freeze from the Rocksteady crew and just remind people that we were here because there's always a new crop of young people coming up that are embracing this art form and trying to participate, but they don't always know who their heroes should be. And so I'm here to tell you who they are. Jam Master J, Grandmaster Flash, Run DMC, EPMD, Slick Rick, De La Soul, Public Enemy, Queen Latifah, MC Light. I'm here to tell you who they are. (laughs) Your special skill is translating the essence of the artist that maybe comes to you in terms of sound and carriage and posture and flow and pacing. And you need to translate that into a visual. And you were in a key place to do that because you understood and your translation skills were so tight. Doesn't that feel like a gift to be able to kind of take what they're doing and bring it into another language that helps other people understand it? It it feels like a gift to be able to do it for a long time. Okay. That feels like a gift. (laughs) But but I, I, I don't allow myself to think about it beyond the task at hand and to communicate a visual message in a way that appeals to people is what pop art is. And I am a fan of pop art. And so I think about a lot of things in a visual sensibility 
But I also think that communicating ideas is really important, especially now, and communicating messages that help people think about things that maybe are not on their radar. And that's why I I reference my friends that have dedicated their lives to putting good information out into the universe, like like my buddy Shepard Ferry. And I, I just think that as a maker, it's our job to try to tell the truth and to make people see things that they don't always see because they're busy doing whatever busy work they're doing. Or if they're younger, maybe they're just interested in having a good time. But it's our job to make people think and to question things, to question things, because things change so fast. And just because it's in front of you, it doesn't mean you have to embrace it. And I could just instantly say, just like Fleetwood Mac in 1977, go your own way. If it means challenging something just because it is in front of you, it doesn't mean it is the greatest thing ever. And you might have an idea to create something that is even better. But the first thing you have to do is be excited, have the will to want to take on the task, but most importantly, don't be afraid to question it just because it's here. I love that. This has been so amazing. Thank you so much for sharing your life story and your philosophies and the birth of your child and all of these exciting, really pivotal moments. This has just been amazing. Thank you, Say. Thank you, Amy. It's so much fun talking to you. Man, I have almost forgotten that I have things I have to (laughs) make. (laughs) And it's the 40th anniversary of Wild Style. And I want to say a big shout out to my buddy, Charlie Ahern, the filmmaker. And I'm just so excited that we're getting to celebrate these anniversaries. A lot of folks have passed on, but we are here to give life to the movement and to remind people that we did this crazy little thing 40 some odd years ago. And I'm here to tell people that Dondi White was here and to remind them that we are no different than you are. The only difference is we're a lot older now. (laughs) And so young people take it away. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Amy. It was a lot of fun, honestly. Hey, thanks so much for listening. For a transcript of this episode and more about Say Adams, including images of his work and a bonus Q&A, head to cleverpodcast.com. If you like Clever, there are a number of ways you can support us. Share Clever with your friends, leave us a five-star rating or a kind review, support our sponsors, or hit the follow or subscribe button in your podcast app so that our new episodes will turn up in your feed. We love to hear from you on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. I mean, X. You can find us at Clever Podcast and you can find me at Amy Devers. Please stay tuned for upcoming announcements and bonus content. You can subscribe to our newsletter at cleverpodcast.com to make sure you don't miss a thing. Clever is hosted and produced by me, Amy Devers, with editing by Mark Zerowinski, Production assistance from Alana Nevins and Anushka Stefan, and music by L1011. 
Clever is a proud member of the Surround Podcast Network. Visit surroundpodcasts.com to discover more of the architecture and design industry's premier shows. It is very much like being a, a secret agent or a spy.